Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing over there, Nathan? Good, Clinton. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. We are advocates and voices for the unborn with Life Training Institute, whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Now, Nathan and I are actually joined by a special guest today. We have Dr. George Delgado here with us to talk about abortion pill reversal. Dr. George Delgado is the medical director of Abortion Pill Reversal, APR, and of Culture of Life Family Healthcare. Dr. Delgado published the first peer-reviewed article in the medical literature describing the reversal of mifepristone, RU486, using progesterone. He then established Abortion Pill Reversal, a program that connects women who have changed their minds after taking mifepristone, RU486, and want to reverse the effects of the abortion pill. APR also seeks to refine and improve the treatment protocols for reversing mifepristone. Dr. Delgado received his medical degree from the University of California, Davis, and completed his residency at Santa Monica Hospital, UCLA. He is board certified in family medicine and in hospice and palliative medicine. Dr. Delgado is an NFP medical consultant trained in NAPRO technology. He completed the one-year certification program in healthcare ethics with the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Dr. Delgado is a voluntary associate clinical professor at the UCSD School of Medicine. He is an experienced popular speaker who has made hundreds of presentations to a wide variety of audiences, including pro-life fundraisers. His topics include APR, abortion, euthanasia, stem cell research, cloning, personhood, other bioethical issues, NAPRO technology, and natural family planning. Dr. Delgado is a regular guest on Catholic Answers Live, the most widely heard show on Catholic radio. He and his wife Liz were selected to receive the St. Gianna Mala Pro-Life Award at the 2017 Walk for Life West Coast. Dr. Delgado and his wife Liz have four children and one grandchild. Dr. Delgado, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you here. You're very welcome. It's great to be here. 
Now, you're actually the second person that I've had from Catholic Answers on this program. A couple of months ago, I interviewed Trent Horn about his book and his recent debate with David Boonin. Oh, Trent's done great work in the uh, art of persuading uh, people to look at the pro-life position. Oh, yeah, most definitely. So the topic under discussion that we have today is regarding abortion pill reversal, and we've brought Dr. George Delgado on to talk about his expertise in this area. So, Dr. Delgado, before we begin, when you talk about reversing the abortion pill, you're talking about strictly RU486, correct? You're not necessarily talking about other contraceptives which may or may not have an abortifacient function? That's correct. We're really only speaking of RU-46, which these days is called mifepristone. Mm. There are other medications that are used for medical abortions, uh, primarily in this country, methotrexate, which actually we do have um, a a small amount of cases of people who have attempted reversal of methotrexate, but uh, Mm. not, not too many, nothing we've published yet. And occasionally people will take the second drug of the cocktail, misoprostol, also known as Cytotec, but we do not have a way to reverse that. So we will focus on mifepristone, which previously was called RU-46. Hey, Dr. Delgado. Uh, First question that I would have is, with the abortion pill, there is an ongoing debate, especially here in California, with the bill SB-320 in the California legislature to get California colleges, the UCs, the CSUs, and the community colleges to provide the RU486 abortion pill within the health centers. So this is a very timely topic. So probably for our listening audience, they might not even know how exactly the abortion pill works. So would you be able to describe that for us, Dr. Delgado? Certainly. Before we dive into how mifepristone works, we need to know how progesterone works because mifepristone blocks progesterone receptors. And how And why is progesterone so important to the pregnancy? Well, progesterone is essential to a normal pregnancy. That's why it's called progesterone. The name means pro or for gestation, for gestation. And it does a myriad of things, including allowing adherence of the placenta to the wall of the uterus, which is the lifeline of the the baby, the preborn baby getting nutrition from the mother. It leads to relaxation of the muscles of the uterus, because during pregnancy, you want the uterus to be nice and relaxed. You don't want it to be contracting. Additionally, the progesterone keeps the cervix tightly closed like a biologic valve so that nothing from the outside world can get into the inside world of the uterus. You want those completely separate. When a woman takes mifepristone or RU46, it blocks the progesterone receptors, and the receptors are how the progesterone works in the body. You can think of a receptor as a key lock, and you can think of the hormone as the key. The key goes into the lock, it turns the lock, and the door opens. That door opening is analogous to what we call the hormone function, the effect of the hormone inside all the cells of the body. Now imagine if you can, if you've ever put a key into a lock that was the wrong key, although it fit into the lock, it didn't turn the lock. That's exactly what a receptor blocker does. It enters into the receptor, but does not allow the door to open. It does not allow the hormone effect to take place. And so when you do that, you block all the good effects of the progesterone. So then what happens if a woman takes mifepristone? The placenta separates from the uterus. And of course, that cuts off all the nutrients 
that are necessary for the preborn baby's survival and development. And that's what leads to the death of the embryo or the fetus. Additionally, the uterus starts to get twitchy and crampy and some contractions do start. The cervix will soften and start to open. So these are all effects of the mifepristone RU-46. By, by giving progesterone as our antidote, what do we do? Well, we outcompete the mifepristone at the receptor site. So instead of having some good keys and some bad keys, fighting to see who can get into the lock, you flood the system with good keys so they outcompete the bad keys. More good keys get into the lock. The door opens more often. The bad effects of the mifepristone finally until the mifepristone washes out of the system. Hmm. Uh, another question regarding that is what's going on with the prenatal human being in terms of their development when RU486 is prescribed or taken? Like how early in the pregnancy is it going on? And what is the prenatal human being doing in terms of developing and growing? Mifepristone is approved to be taken up to 10 weeks gestation. So 10 weeks in medical parlance means 10 weeks after the first day of the last menstrual period. So by embryonic age, that would be eight weeks. But we call it 10 weeks because we know that when the last period started. So the woman first knows she's pregnant, usually when she has missed a period, and she's four to five weeks after her last menstrual period, which is about two to three weeks of embryonic age. From, from during that time, the so-called embryonic period, the preborn human being is going through a lot of development. That's when all the organs are forming. That's when the heart first starts beating. That's when the brain is forming. Every single organ. So by the time the preborn baby is at about ten weeks, then all of the uh, organs are formed, and it's just so they just require growth at that point. Yeah, because a lot of the, I mean, I just had a conversation with a couple of coworkers last night about this. They were saying that, I mean, I think there's a lot of confusion, especially in our culture, about what is going on in embryonic development. And a lot of people think that embryonic development means at the first few cell stage, so at the zygote stage or the blastocyst stage. And so I think there's a lot of confusion about what exactly is going on throughout the pregnancy to the human embryo and the human fetus. And so we kind of touched on this a little bit, but how does the APR treatment work itself? Like if somebody wanted to go and take APR, what would their steps be and what would they need to do? If a woman took mifepristone and changed her mind and wanted to try to reverse the medical abortion, then we give her a second chance at choice. And she generally would find us on the internet by, by doing a search and then look at our website. Our website has a huge amount of information, answers a lot of their questions. And after reading all this information, if the woman still feels she wants to pursue reversal, then she would call our 800 hotline that's available there on the website and talk to one of our nurses who's specially trained to answer all of her questions to make sure that she understands exactly what reversal entails. And if at that point she wants to proceed, our nurse will then connect her with a doctor in her area who is willing, capable, and trained to administer the APR protocol in order to help her attempt to reverse the medical abortion. 
how long right after taking the RU486 does she need to undergo the APR treatment? We have studied women taking it out to 72 hours post mifepristone. So we encourage them to get going with it, and we think that uh, probably the sooner the better. Um, but certainly up, up to 72 hours, we are, are confident that we have some chance of um, reversing the medical abortion. How many abortion pill reversals have the, your organization done? We have about 300 births, babies who have survived uh, the medical abortion process after reversal, and approximately another 100 women are still pregnant after taking progesterone to reverse the mifepristone. Now, is that just you personally, or is that the total number of women who've been treated with the abortion pill reversal? That's the total number of women who have been treated by doctors in inside and outside of our network. And there probably are more of which we're not aware, but these are the ones who have gone through our network and we are aware of them. How long ago did you guys develop this uh, abortion pill reversal? Because this is still fairly new from what I can tell. This is still fairly new, and the first ever recorded reversal was performed by Dr. Matthew Harrison in North Carolina. Dr. Harrison is our associate medical director of APR. At that time, though, he and I did not know each other, and he had a woman come into his office who had taken mifepristone and regretted it and asked if he could help her reverse it. He had knowledge of progesterone use during pregnancy, so he theorized that giving extra amounts of progesterone, supplemental progesterone, could indeed outcompete the mifepristone. He treated her that way, and the reversal was successful. Two years later, uh, Dr. Harrison and I still did not know each other, and I was not aware of his reversal. I received a similar call from a woman in Bakersfield, California, Terry Palmquist, who is a sidewalk counselor and has a 1-800 number to help women who are in crisis situations around abortion. And she asked me if I could help a woman in El Paso, Texas, who had taken mifepristone and had changed her mind. I told her, well, I'd never heard of anyone reversing mifepristone, but I knew how mifepristone worked because I'd studied it as soon as it was released in the United States. I knew that it was a progesterone receptor blocker, and I had a great deal of experience using progesterone in pregnancy, particularly to prevent miscarriages. So I theorized, just like Dr. Harrison did, that if I gave extra progesterone, that perhaps the progesterone would outcompete the, the mifepristone. The problem was I was in San Diego and the patient was in El Paso, Texas. Fortunately, I was able to find a doctor who was also trained in NAPRA technology and had experience using progesterone who was in El Paso, and that was Dr. Jonathan Bellacura. I contacted her, and she agreed to give the progesterone. I devised a protocol and offered it to her, and she used it, and the baby survived. After that, word started getting out, and people were calling me asking for advice and and pretty soon we had more cases. At that point, uh, I decided to write a case series article, which I did with my co-author, Dr. Mary Davenport, who's our director of research for APR. By that time, I had heard of Dr. Harrison's case, and I included Dr. Harrison's case in, in the article. Once the article was published, more people started becoming interested. I knew we had a couple of problems at that point. One was that more women needed to learn about this in a timely fashion. 
and we need to have more doctors on board so that we could easily connect women with doctors in their respective areas. So in order to meet those needs, we started the website abortionpillreversal.com in conjunction with the toll-free hotline number, and we started recruiting more doctors for our network. Now we have greater than 350 doctors in our network, and we're receiving 100 to 150 calls per month on our hotline. Something I remember hearing a while back was that progesterone treatments were originally developed to treat and prevent miscarriages. Is there some truth to that? Well, progesterone therapy has been used for treating what we call threatened miscarriages to prevent miscarriages for many, many years. It's been used in pregnancy over 50 years. It also has been okay. used for other, other different uses besides that. So recently there was a New York Times piece that was essentially very critical of the work that APR does and the work that Colts does. And it was the author of the article was obviously very biased in her approach to it is she was very critical and trying to make it look like APR was essentially forcing women's hand and not letting them carry out the effect of their choice, the, the choice they had made to have a medical abortion. What, what would you respond to that with? Well, I knew going into it that the New York Times would not be sympathetic, that the New York Times has a bias, a pro-death bias, an anti-life bias. When you look at the article from that perspective, the positives are that, number one, more people know about APR. Number two, she actually quoted me fairly accurately and used most of, of the, my important quotes, maybe left out a couple that I wish had been in there. And she also quoted our nurse, Marie Stetler, accurately. The bonus was that she interviewed a pro-choice doctor from New York who said that he felt that the abortion pill reversal process was a logical process. And he even said that if, if my daughter were pregnant and accidentally took mifepristone, I would treat her with progesterone. So that right there, I think, really affirmed and verified the potential and the promise and the firm grounding of our APR protocol. So overall, I think anybody looking at that article would clearly see the author's bias. It was very clear from just from the title of the article itself and from all of her comments, the way she editorialized in there. But if you look deeper at it, you look at my comments, how she quoted me, and the, the other doctor, I think uh, we can get a lot of um, good news from that. I think people who would, who are open-minded, who would read it, would read between the lines, and I think would be positively influenced by the article. Um, also, another question: uh, since we did talk your bio about your background in bioethics and uh, philosophy, what what do you think leads a lot of doctors, especially doctors engaged in prenatal care or even abortionists? like uh, the infamous partner, they know exactly what they're dealing with in terms of prenatal development of the human being. What do you think leads a lot of doctors to still support abortion, even though they know exactly what abortion does? What's happened in our modern healthcare is that we've gone from classical Aristotelian ethics, where you have fundamental grounding and and an affirmation of what's right and wrong, and you have processes for evaluating 
different circumstances and situations in order to determine if something is being done for the greater good or not and something is following the natural law to a new ethics that is really a utilitarian and relativistic ethics. With utilitarian ethics, you see the the endpoint that you want and then you justify that endpoint by making ethics work out. And that's exactly what's happened here with, with abortion and with doctors who really do know what's going on with the embryonic development and know that this is truly a unique individual human being that that is in the womb. And so what they've done, of course, is they've made, and they and others have said that a woman's right to control her body trumps the pre-born baby's right to live. And they've turned things really upside down and made this right to control her body sort of supreme over anything else, this autonomy of the woman's body. And, of course, the Supreme Court went along with this in its Roe v. Wade decision and the companion Bowe versus Dalton, as well as um, subsequent uh, decisions such as Casey. And that's, that's what has allowed this, um, this cloud of darkness to really shadow the eyes of these doctors and really of society in general in order to accept that um, the women have the right to abort their preborn babies. Roughly how many doctors are there who do abortion pill reversals? We have more than 350 doctors in our network. Oh, wow. That was a bit higher than I was expecting. How uh, good of a success rate is there with abortion pill reversal? I mean, what are the chances that the abortion pill reversal is going to work to reverse the effects of the mifepristone? We are currently analyzing our data for a study that will be submitted for publication shortly. So I can't give you exact numbers because that would jeopardize our ability to publish in a peer-reviewed medical journal because they would obviously want to publish information first. What I can tell you is that with our best protocols, our success rates are in the range of 60 to 70 percent. Now, we compare that to the survival rate of a preborn baby whose mother took mifepristone and did nothing at all. That's what we call the historic control rate. And we have a way to look at that because Dr. Mary Davenport, our research director, just published an article in April of 2017 in a journal called Issues in Law and Medicine. In that article, she reviewed all of the early mifepristone studies. These were the studies when they only gave women mifepristone and not the second drug misoprostol. So this serves as a very reliable control. Looking at those, the survival rate of embryos was up to 25% if nothing was done. So that means that that's our comparison when we compare our success rates to what would happen if the woman did nothing at all. So safe to say that 25% of abortion pills are likely to fail and result in a, essentially the ironic term, a botched abortion, and the child ends up surviving it. Is there, there's a 25% failure rate with the abortion pill? So if, if only the abortion, if only the first part of the abortion pill is taken, the mifepristone, yes, that would be the 
quote, failure rate. Now, it might be lower than that, however, because in these studies, they waited a certain number of days, and if the embryo was still alive, then they performed a surgical abortion. So we really don't know what would have happened if no surgical abortion were done, because some of them still might have died. But in order to... In order to be safe from criticism, we're using the 25% number. Now, changing topics a little bit, what are some of the common objections to either using APR or some of the objections that you hear in the media or put forward by Planned Parenthood and NARAL and the National Organization for Women? And what would you say are the correct answers to those? Sure, there are several objectives, objections that have been raised. One is that our opponents say that women don't change their minds and that we are making them feel guilty and forcing this upon them. It's nothing further from the truth. All of the women who have called our hotline have done of their own volition. We have not gone out to recruit them to join, uh, to join our effort or to, to attempt to reverse the mifepristone. It's their free choice. We're giving them a second chance at choice. There's no coercion involved. We're not forcing them to do anything. They choose to do this by themselves. Secondly, the, the studies they quote where they say that women have no regret are flawed studies because these are studies that are really biased in favor of showing that women have no remorse for having abortions. When you look at other research, particularly by Dr. Priscilla Coleman, you see that the number of women who do have some regret and some remorse is actually substantial. And so the way I look at it is if you have approximately 300,000 or more medical abortions a year in the United States, probably closer to 400 or 450,000, and even just a small percentage of those have some regret, then I think we're offering a very good service to them so that they do have a second chance at choice. Second objection raised is that Many, many women who have called abortion centers after taking mifepristone and called the actual abortion center and asked about reversal have been told, your baby's sure to have birth defects. And, of course, they are either lying or they are unaware of the medical literature because the medical literature is highly suggestive that mifepristone does not cause birth defects. In fact, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in a 2014 practice bulletin stated that mifepristone is not associated with birth defects. And the American College of Obstetrician and Gynecologists is not for us. They've criticized us and they've attacked us, yet they say that mifepristone is free of birth defects. Progesterone has a 50-plus-year history of use in pregnancy, and it's not associated with birth defects either. In fact, a related compound called 17-hydroxyprogesterone is FDA-approved for use throughout pregnancy in women who've previously had preterm deliveries. So birth defects are not an issue. Third is they, when they call the abortion center, they say it's impossible to reverse it. And of course, we have now shown with our data that it is possible to reverse it. And our high success rates are much greater than the survival rate if nothing at all is done, which is the 25% number at best that I've quoted So those are the main objections, and those are our answers to them. Something I've been pondering for a while now, ever since I first heard about the ability to reverse the abortion pill, is why 
and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, but why do you, f- why do you think that uh, abortion choice people and organizations such as Planned Parenthood are fighting tooth and nail to try and convince women that it's not possible to reverse the abortion pill? They label themselves as pro-choice, and of course it's just a rhetorical label, but it seems to me that if there is that choice available, if it is possible for a woman to who has second thoughts about the abortion and wants to get the abortion pill reversed, it seems like in the name of choice, this is something that even pro-choice people should support and offer women. That's exactly right. If if they really were pro-choice, they would welcome the second chance at choice. But since they don't, that proves that they're not pro-choice, they're simply pro-abortion. I think the reason it is because when you when it comes right down to it, Planned Parenthood is really all about the money. And I think all of the revelations surrounding Planned Parenthood in the last few years have shown that. So in their eyes, they, they have, a, have had a very clever marketing scheme. And that marketing scheme has been to influence society at all levels, starting even from uh, young school-age children on up to, to older adults, and influence them, influence them to believe that abortion is fundamentally a good thing, that it's a good thing for women to have the right to abortion. And so if that, the goodness of abortion in their eyes, of course, is ever questioned, if it ever comes into question that abortion is a good thing, then what's going to happen, of course, then their market share will go down. There will have, fewer people will have abortions if people start to think, well, you know, maybe abortion isn't such a good thing. And so by it being revealed that there are women who actually regret their abortions and who actually try to reverse the abortions, then that flies in the face of the narrative that abortion is a great thing. And that then the facade starts to crack and the general public starts to feel, well, maybe abortion isn't always a good thing. Or some people might even say maybe abortion isn't a good thing at all. So then that will lead to fewer women having abortions, less money for Planned Parenthood and all the other abortion providers. We talked about that a few weeks ago with Patty Smith from Silent No More about the whole issue of, I mean, really the whole argument that is put forth. It's not even an argument. It's an assertion, really, that, oh, there's no such thing as abortion regret. And really, that statement is just bogus, actually, when... uh, Mine and Clinton's boss, Scott Klusendorf, debated Nadine Strawson a few months ago. Uh, she put that forth during the cross-examination. She said, there's no such thing as abortion regret, pseudoscience. And really, it's amazing to watch pro-choice media and pro-choice advocates make statements like that when clearly there are people who do regret their abortions and somehow they're completely ignored or um, even worse, they're called irrational or called bigoted. It's really amazing to watch. And I honestly, I would say it's very anti-woman to say that women who do have abortions and regret them are lying or whatever. It's it's really amazing to watch. All right. Well, those are about all the questions that we have for you, Dr. Delgado. Was there anything that you wanted to add before we move on to close the program? No, I think uh, we've covered everything pretty well. Great. Well, once again, we've been joined here by Dr. George Delgado. And we've been talking about abortion pill reversal. So once again, I'd like to thank you for listening. And Dr. Delgado, we'd like to thank you again for joining us. The information that you've presented here has been been very helpful. It's been my pleasure.
And of course, I'd like to thank my co-host, Nathan, for joining me to, to discuss this topic with, with Dr. Delgado. Hopefully you found the information that we've pre presented here enlightening. And if you know somebody who is in need of having the abortion pill reversed, then uh, we just hope that this information we've presented to you will be helpful. And again, we'd like to just stress that that you, you can't really wait too long because 72 hours is really the the span of time that Dr. Delgado was talking about. And so, yeah, it's not something that can, that can wait. Um, hopefully the information here that we've presented will be helpful in that respect. And so, of course, if you appreciated what we talked about here, then we would just ask that you share it around uh, your various social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, wherever. And, of course, uh, rate and review us on our Facebook page and also on iTunes. Now, we do have some upcoming events. Uh, I'm going to be debating a right to die with Matt Dillahunty, an atheist Internet personality, on Friday, September 8th at the Bible and Beer Consortium in Dallas, Texas at 6 o'clock local time. And so, yeah, that's uh, that's actually coming up uh, a little bit less than a month now. And then uh, a couple of days later, when I'll be in Houston, I'm scheduled to appear on the Sin Boldly radio program, in, which is hosted by Evan McClanahan, to discuss abortion with a local abortion choice advocate. And now Aaron uh, wasn't able to join us today, but on August 13th, which is actually today, uh, the day that this is airing, he is speaking via Skype to the apologetics class Reason Why at Catalina Foothills Church in Arizona. He's going to be giving a presentation on the case for life, followed by a question and answer period. And thanks again to Dan Grossenbach for inviting him. So if you happen to be in any of these areas, uh, come on out. We'd love to see you. Now, this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working to kill unborn babies than there are people working to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com, which is the Life Training Institute website, and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And if you'd like to donate to this podcast specifically, you can indicate that in the notes section as well. Donations are also tax deductible. Now next week, uh, we're planning to have Aaron back with us, and we're going to be talking about the equal rights argument. So we're going to be delving back into the philosophy of the pro-life position. So once again, on behalf of Nathan and myself, I would like to thank you again for joining us, and we will see you next time. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.